Good morning and good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us for this webinar, looking at the importance of family, friend, and neighbor care for immigrant and dual language learner families. Uh, my name is Margie McHugh. I'm the director of the Migration Policy Institute's National Center on Immigrant Integration Policy. And um, before getting going today, I'd just like to say a little bit about the logistics for the call. You can see up on the screen that if you have any problems accessing the webinar, uh, please feel free to call our communications team at 202-266-1929. Uh, you can also email them at events at migrationpolicy.org. Uh, also, there is no voice Q&A, so you can see the several ways that you can ask questions of the panelists. Uh, please use the Q&A function. That's sort of the easiest for us. If you don't, uh, if you if you don't have a preference, please use that one. Uh, and uh, and uh, please write during the webinar. We love to get questions as the webinar is uh, going on because it helps me as the moderator in particular to be able to sort of group uh, like topics together and the like, and uh, just uh, be more prepared when we get to the Q&A session at the end. Uh, you can see too that audio from the webinar will be available on our website. Uh, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of ways you can uh, just get in touch with us uh, for anything that you need related to the report uh, and the webinar and the like. And then just moving on, um, I uh, just wanna say, um, I, th I think many of you who are on the call um, already know and follow our work, uh, but for any of you who are new to us, um, this particular release today is part of a, a larger body of work and several large baskets of work that our center has been involved in uh, since 2007. So we have a really uh, deep set of investments in the education and training pipeline, both in the early childhood education and care space, elementary and secondary education, adult education and workforce development, as well as language access policies, both at the federal, state and local levels. And, uh, and then particularly uh, at the federal and state levels, trying to support more coordinated governance of integration policy. Uh, so turning to today's release, um, I just um, want to say you can see the bit.ly there on the on the screen, uh, but uh, today's release is a, a very a project we were very, very happy to be able to undertake, I would say throughout the year um, and since the start of COVID even that we've been really concerned about how to seize the moment with the discourse that's been going on related to equity. Uh, and related to just the, the, many, uh, the, the many problems that we saw with COVID that really demonstrated how distant so many families were from being able to access services and there's two generation impacts, the household level impacts and the child level impacts that, were, that have been so prominent. And so hoping that this really, that we are in a moment uh, related to improving equity uh, throughout the year, we've released a number of products. One was a, an analysis of foreign-born and native-born parent characteristics for parents of young children and also elementary and school-age children, and also a series of data and policy briefs related to dual language learner identification. So at least in our minds, this piece of work related to family, friend, and neighbor care um, really fits so perfectly um, with that conversation now that there's there's been such a discourse and concern around childcare and how to build out child care, the childcare system that it's really easy to see. Uh, well, it's been easy for many of you to see um, what the disconnects are um, within childcare for immigrant and refugee families. And so we hope that this release will be a, a, a meaningful contribution to work around equity uh, as we move forward with potential uh, major new investments in childcare. So with that in mind, um, that's how we put together today's webinar and the terrific speakers that we have. Uh, we'll be starting first with Maki Park, uh, well known to many of you, MPI Senior Policy Analyst for Early Education and Care and one of the co-authors of today's uh, uh, brief that we're releasing. Um, and then also we're just delighted that Lorena Garcia, who is direct, executive director of the Colorado Statewide Parent Coalition, 
uh, is able to join us. I'll say more about her and also Natalie Renew, who is the director of Homegrown uh, when we get to their portions of the webinar. But I'll just say that in terms of sort of the roadmap for the webinar, webinar that uh, we really wanted to um, highlight the work that Lorena and Natalie are involved in because it speaks both to how to leverage something like this report uh, and, and see the practical implications in really forward leaning work that's going on and also think about the policy implications uh, given the, uh, the threshold that we're on in terms of major new investments that are coming down uh, as part of recovery funds and more that we're hoping will come down as part of recovery funds. Um, so with that, please send in your questions throughout the webinar and I'll turn it over to Maki. Great. Thank you so much, Margie. And thanks so much to everyone for joining us today and especially to our speakers for being part of the conversation. Um, so by way of introduction, as Margie was saying, we at MPI have been eager to raise this issue of FFN care and immigrant families for a long time based on conversations that we've had with partners on the ground about immigrant families' attitudes and preferences around childcare. So to set the stage, um, currently one out of every four young children ages five and under are children of immigrants. And one in three of all young children are dual language learners or children who have at least one parent who speaks a language other than English in the home. And often we're hearing from our partners who work with these communities that there's, there is this big disconnect, as Margie was saying, between the discourse that we see around childcare policy and where the kids we are concerned with are actually being served. In many ways, we find that it can be difficult to authentically engage immigrant parents in childcare policy conversations when they do not necessarily see a direct line between the investments that are being advocated for and whether those resources are likely to actually ever reach them or their communities. So with these exciting increasing investments likely to be coming into a childcare system that does remain in many ways blind to the places where a huge proportion of immigrant families and other families of color are receiving childcare, childcare that works best for them and for their needs, we feel that this is an urgent moment to shine a light on the caregivers who are doing and have been doing this work, oftentimes with no compensation, and make sure that they get the support they need to thrive and to support the children in their care to thrive. Because we don't see the demand and the need for FFN care as something that's likely to dissipate or certainly to disappear anytime soon. So if we don't invest in this sector, there's a risk that we're creating this bifurcated or stratified childcare system that has these significant built-in inequities. So this is a time of both enormous promise and enormous opportunity as caregivers and care work in general are beginning to receive the attention and investments that they need to sustain us all. And the brief that Jasmine and I wrote really seeks to point to ways that these new much needed and necessary investments can be used by states and localities to effectively support young immigrant and DLL children and their families where they're being cared for. So on the next slide, um, to get us started, I was going to talk briefly about what we mean when we refer to FFN care. And what we call F family friend and neighbor care is essentially just that. Um, what it sounds like, it's non-parental care provided in the home by grandparents, aunties, godparents, trusted friends, neighbors, other adults in the community. Um, and FFN care is considered a subset of what we call family child care, which refers to any child care arrangement that's provided in the caregiver's home, as opposed to in a formal child care center. And different states have different regulations around FFN care. FFN providers might operate on a licensed or unlicensed basis, depending on individual state regulations. There are also different laws around the number of children that caregivers can have in their care, for example. Um, and FFN providers also may or may not be eligible for childcare subsidies, depending on the same regulations. So a wide range of circumstances covered under this broad terminology. Um, on the next slide, we look at who are the families who rely on FFN care. Most important to note is that FFN care is the most commonly used form of care by far among all families, especially when we're looking at the infant and toddler years. And I think if many of us think back to our childcare arrangements when we were young, images of those trusted and beloved FFN care providers that our families relied on may come to mind. The children served in FFN care are also disproportionately likely to be children of color, 
dual language learners or children of immigrants, meaning that a large majority of children of immigrants and DLLs in non-parental care are being served through this sector. And why might this be the case? For immigrant and dual language learner families in particular, there are multiple important benefits that make FFN care in many cases the most desirable and high quality option according to their preferences and what they're seeking in finding the best possible care for their children. Given the relative lack of culturally competent and linguistically responsive early childhood services in the formal childcare system, FFN care is where families are likely to find the culture, the language, and the values matches that they are looking for. Um, they may also provide the flexibility they need according to their work schedules that they can't find elsewhere. And then alongside all of this is a factor of trust. These are the providers that many families believe are most likely to authentically care for their children and keep them safe. So ultimately, there may be many ways in which the FFN sector provides the kind of experience that the formal childcare system fails to view as a priority in its definition of high quality. So we really want to dispel this idea that FFN care is care of last resort, because in many cases, it can be a choice or a preference. But then, of course, at the same time, there's also just flat out the question of availability. We know that areas with large numbers of immigrant families are simply less likely to have formal childcare options available. They're significantly more likely to live in so-called childcare deserts, which is a term that incidentally completely erases the very real childcare work that FFN providers are doing. Um, and of course, the pandemic has really exacerbated this issue with studies showing that the percentage of families relying on FFN care has only risen during the pandemic due to multiple factors, including the temporary and permanent closures of childcare centers. So FFN providers during this time have really been the ones who've stepped in for immigrant families with essential workers who had no choice but to remain at work to sustain their families regardless of the risk to their own health. Uh, on the next slide, we look at who are the FFN care providers. Um, and this really is a two generation issue when it comes to immigrant communities, because by and large, the caregivers who are providing care for immigrant families are largely immigrants themselves. And many of them face numerous compounded barriers to their own well being and their family's well being and their ability to earn a family sustaining wage. And there's a lot we don't know based on highly limited data and information. But what we do know is that the early childhood workforce is highly stratified by race and ethnicity. So when you look at the more informal, lower paying sectors of the workforce, that is where BIPOC workers and those who speak a language other than English are more likely to be represented. The majority of FFN caregivers, approximately three quarters, are unlisted in childcare registries and working without pay. And for those who do receive pay, the hourly rate of care is extremely low. Um, and despite the large majority of these caregivers being unlisted, many of them do wish to seek licensure, as I'll be discussing in just a moment. Um, but there are a lot of barriers inherent in this process, which brings us to the next slide. Um, so I'll talk quickly now about some of the barriers that we see for FFN caregivers, and especially for those who are immigrants or limited in their English proficiency. First and foremost is the fact that our existing childcare system does not adequately support or recognize the FFN sector. The Federal Child Care Development Block Grant, which is the largest source of subsidies, currently only serves a small fraction of eligible children. And even among this small proportion, a tiny fraction goes to FFN providers, despite the fact that they provide such a substantial proportion of care in the country. And FFN providers who speak a language other than English are even less likely than their peers to access subsidies. Uh, research shows that many immigrant FFN providers do not know that subsidies could be available to them, even in cases where they are eligible. And even those who do access some funding receive significantly less than those in other childcare settings at rates that are not enough to cover the true cost of care, nor can the low income families they serve bear the burden of this cost. So as a result, we know that many FFN providers struggle with food insecurity and other challenges related to having insufficient income, which again is harmful not only to themselves, but also the quality of care that they're able to provide. In the same vein, FFN providers also have limited access to professional development opportunities. Many organizations that are funded by states to provide quality supports to childcare providers 
are disincentivized from working with FFN caregivers, especially those that speak a language other than English and may face other barriers to advancement. So for the many who do desire to pursue licensure, there are numerous hurdles built into the system that need to be overcome that are very challenging for this population. And for those who do not wish to seek licensure, there are simply very few support opportunities available to them, despite the important services that they provide. With meaningful exceptions, of course, including the work in Colorado that we'll be hearing about today from Lorena. And then finally, there are still very real structural and legislative barriers facing immigrant FFN caregivers as well. Language and technological access are huge challenges here that still need to be addressed, even at the base level, just basic translation of information and application forms, but also legislative barriers in cases where unlicensed providers can face punitive action, creating this culture of fear and pushing these caregivers further into the shadows and isolating them from support. Particularly for those who may be undocumented, being unable to access services, including food support, can keep caregivers from getting the resources they need for themselves, as well as for the children in their care. And then on the last slide, I'll move on to some opportunities and forward-looking directions. Um, so how can we address these issues? Just a top-line list taken directly from our brief, and Natalie will be doing a deeper dive into some of these policy areas. Um, but first, we can reduce the administrative, legislative, and other barriers that currently prevent immigrant FFN caregivers from accessing support from existing resources, like the Child Care Block Grant. That means meaningful language access. That means services that meet providers where they are. That means accessible subsidies that reflect the cost of care and can sustain a family-sustaining wage. What that also means is eliminating those legislative barriers, such as those that prevent undocumented caregivers and others from getting support for the work that they are doing. Second, federal funding. We are all so excited to see childcare gain national attention and for historic investments to potentially be made in the field. And we also know that, for example, the recent American Relief Plan that had childcare dollars where FFN care was an allowable use of that money um, even so, few states made significant investments in FFN despite that fact. So not only do we need federal funds for childcare, and not only should FFN be an allowable activity, we also need explicit guidance for states to specifically support FFN caregivers in a way that's accessible to immigrant and non-English speaking communities. And how can we do that? Um, one important opportunity that we're excited about is to support home visiting as an effective service model to reach these communities. The federal home visiting program known as McV is going to be up for reauthorization soon and using this vehicle as an opportunity to reach not only primary caregivers, but also non custodial caregivers like FFN providers is an important opportunity. This is particularly important as well because home visiting is currently known to be underserving immigrant and DLL families relative to their peers. So offering flexibility for this program to serve FFN caregivers also provides an opportunity to make participation in home visiting services themselves more equitable. In an earlier brief, we also discussed why home visiting could be an especially effective program model for reaching immigrant families, given the mode of service delivery that physically and figuratively reaches families where they are and also given the relational emphasis of this model and the way that it can potentially meet family needs in such a holistic two-generation oriented way. And then beyond home visiting, there's also an opportunity to funnel more support into existing community-based organizations. We mentioned several powerful examples in our brief, including PASO, of course, in Colorado, as well as Candelan in Arizona, Lared in Minnesota, CBOs that are implementing culturally specific kaleidoscope play and learn groups in Washington state. We know that these organizations are doing this work successfully and there's an opportunity to expand and replicate practices that we know are effective and are culturally rooted. Often the kinds of evidence that culturally specific CBOs like these demonstrate in terms of their efficacy is not fully recognized such that larger mainstream organizations that actually may lack the language and culture and other skills and the connections to immigrant and other communities of colors, yet they're often favored for funding because of their size or because they're more well-established or have more capacity to apply for complex RFPs, which leads to these communities continuing to be underserved. Um, next, I wanted to talk about data and research. 
One of the biggest hurdles we face in doing this work is the lack of information about FFN caregivers that's available. Many state leaders may simply not know how vital this sector is for their families due to this lack of data. How can we gather the information that we need to support this population in a way that doesn't place an additional burden on them, not just who they are, but the languages they speak and their other needs and characteristics. And then the last point related to uh, data and research. We need these people at the table in order to make good and equitable policies. FFN providers and the families they serve need to have a voice in policy and advocacy conversations to keep them from remaining invisible and to make sure that the value and the critical work that they're doing is recognized and understood by those with decision-making power. So I will stop my presentation there uh, and hand it back over to you, Margie. Great, thanks, Maki. And, um, and I should say, as we transition um, to Lorena's presentation, thank you uh, to all of the terrific folks in the field, um, including the uh, Colorado Statewide Parent Coalition for um, all the kind of support and information uh, that they shared over the course of our uh, field research for this. So uh, it's a great pleasure to introduce Lorena Garcia, ED of the Colorado Statewide Parent Coalition. She's been a leader in nonprofit uh, organizations and policy advocacy for many years, and uh, most recently has been serving since 2018 as the executive director of the Statewide Coalition, which provides advocacy and training for parents and childcare providers and works to close the opportunity gap for many families uh, that's facing many families in the state. So Lorena, welcome and over to you. Hi, good morning, good afternoon. I don't know if anyone's an evening yet, but it's great to be here. And thanks so much for the invitation to share what's happening in Colorado. Um, <clears throat> so again, I, my name is Lorena Garcia, and I'm the executive director of the Colorado Statewide Parent Coalition. And I just want to point out really quick that this is a photo of about 80 FFN providers that we graduated through our PASO program, One Institute. And you can go ahead and advance the slide. So what are some of the strategies? As you guys know, in order to truly support the families who rely on FFN care and the FFN providers, it's a multi-pronged approach. Um, we have to rely on community-based training for professional development, networks, we have to focus on rules and regulations, what financial supports exist, as well as policy change. Next slide. So some of the community-based supports, for example, that you've heard mentioned um, that, that CSPC leads is PASO, which stands for Providers Advancing Student Outcomes. This is a course that we have been operating since 2006 and where we go and find informal childcare providers and we help them become better at what they're already good at. And I think this is something that's really important for us is, is, as CSPC and as an organization that works with um, FFN providers is recognizing that our inherent roots and the way that we have been as a, as a, as a human culture has relied on what is now termed as FFN care. We started with home-based care with our neighbors, with the village taking care of our kids. And then somehow we met, we ran into and jumped into a formalized licensed care center facility type of model, ignoring what our roots are. But we're getting back to it. And we're getting back to it by honoring and respecting and lifting up the inherent value of our informal childcare providers. These are trainings um, that we, this, the top photo is one of um, CPR and first aid. And the bottom shows that there is still, even through COVID, we were still providing courses. Even if we had to go through Zoom, there was still um, excitement and interaction. PASO is also evidence-based. Um, through a five years rigorous study, it has proven to be supportive, not only of FFN providers and improving their skills and abilities, but also in providing and also in, excuse me, making sure that the children who are in the care of PASO providers um, were school ready. They would go from an equivalence in statistics, a statistical increase that was equivalent from going from the 11th percentile to the 17th percentile. There's also other programs in Colorado that support FFN providers. Um, I, have only, I only named a, a couple here, but it's Cortivando, Valley Settlement, 
um, some early childhood councils support FFM providers, Spring Institute. Um, what's important is that not one organization or one project or one initiative is not going to be able to meet the, 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 the breadth of need that exists in Colorado and, or in any other state. It's also important that PASO is culturally relevant. We designed PASO to serve the Spanish-speaking PASO uh, provider community. We also created one that serves the MENA community, that it's culturally relevant for the MENA community, which is the um, Middle Eastern Northern African community. We also have a PASO that serves English-speaking, um, uh, US-born um, providers of color. And they're all individualized because they are culturally and linguistically relevant. And that's hugely important and something that, that's lacking that exists. Next slide, please. Um, we also, on the network side, what exists is that within um, creating networks for providers to be able to learn, share, and develop within each other. Um, CSPC uh, convenes um, a, a network called the FFN Strategic Action Network. And this is an, a network that is made up of FFN serving organizations and FFN providers. Um, we are right now in the process of developing our next three-year strategy and how to really serve the FFN community. And this was a plan that was developed with the FFN providers. Some of the potential strategies include creating FFN hubs around the state that resemble early childhood councils. We've often had the question, why not just rely on early childhood councils? Well, unfortunately, because stigma still exists, there are some early childhood councils that don't respect value or even want to work with FFN providers. There's also a mission within early childhood councils to convert FFN providers into being licensed care. So there is that lack of respect for FFN providers and being informal. Um, the other strategies are creating FFN coalition that elect members um, to represent the FFN providers at all of the EC tables that exist. As Maki mentioned in her, in her opening remarks that oftentimes these decisions are being made without having those who are directly impacted at the table with the microphone. And by being able to make sure that there is representation that is trusted by the FFN community that can make the time that is compensated to attend all of the different EC, EC tables that are making these decisions on their behalf, that they're able to have a voice. Another potential strategy is that the organizational partners that are part of the FFN um, Strategic Action Network serve as TA supports, provide trainings, help them become prepared or, or understand what are the complex and nuanced policy um, conversations that are happening. Um, next slide. When we talk about rules and rules and regulations and financial support, you know, we we've heard a little bit, and I know that we'll talk more about this. Um, Natalie will share more about this. So I don't want to spend too much time here, um, but there are because of rules and regulations, there's lack of financial support. Um, it is nearly impossible for providers to receive government-funded food and nutrition support in Colorado. Um, grants are for licensed providers only, or they are to convert an FFN provider into being licensed. It's not to sustain and support an FFN provider. Um, CCAP exists, which is a child care assistance program, the Colorado Child Care Assistance Program, um, only exists for licensed exempt providers if they're not licensed, which means that they still have to register with the state and it must be initiated by the parent. There's also lack of language accessible trainings for non-English speakers. There's some for Spanish speakers, but if you speak Farsi or if you speak Burmese or if you um, speak Pashto, you're out of luck. Those trainings don't exist for you to even improve in your um, professional development or to become licensed. And funds restricted to licensed providers at the federal level, which in some states um, handcuff the, the state from being able to serve FFM providers. Next slide. And in policy change, at the state level, there's some policy changes that, that have passed that really make it possible for FFM providers that want to be licensed to become licensed. In Colorado, CSPC led the, led the, the Removing Barriers Coalition, which tore down the barriers for undocumented immigrants to be able to become licensed. 
there were really horrible anti-immigrant laws that were put on our books in 2006 that required proof of lawful presence in order to apply for any sort of professional occupational or commercial license or any sort of safety net public benefit. We repealed those laws successfully in 2001 and positively affirmed that people can apply for licensure, for public benefits, for grants, for contracts without having to prove lawful presence. Many of the providers that we have trained through PASO are now applying for their license and that's really exciting for us. We also know and we've heard from counties and from the state that they're really excited. Half of this law become, comes into play on July 1st, 2022, but they're really excited specifically for the contract portion that they're then able to contract with providers or with any other, with any other um, licensed professional or, or somebody with a license without having to go through um, E-Verify. We've also re we, we repealed the, the mandatory E-Verify provision that existed in Colorado. So no, anyone who wants to hire a contractor, they don't have to go through E-Verify. Um, this allows for those who do get licensed to then actually apply for the contracts. They're also then now eligible to receive, to apply for grants and for small business loans. They can start their own businesses. They can start their own childcare centers if they want to. Um, and zoning policies have changed. Now we're more standardized thanks to work led by um, Raise Colorado and Clayton Early Learning that now there is zoning policies that are standardized across Colorado. That's a major barrier for folks who wanna become licensed when every county has different zoning and different regulations. Um, some policy changes that need to continue to be massaged and changed are the child to adult ratios for licensed um, and licensed exempt providers. The child to adult ratios put a lot of, even for licensed providers, make it really difficult for specifically for family childcare homes to um, to have enough children in their home and in a, in a safe way where they're, where, where they're still able to make enough to actually provide for them. And then we also passed the Department of Early Childhood this year. So it's a new cabinet level department in Colorado for the Department of Early Childhood. Colorado is limited to 20 cabinet level positions. And this was the 20th one. Shows that the state is prioritizing early childhood. Um, and the great thing about it is that through, um, through the policy creation that the Department of Early Childhood is committed to serving children in all forms of care. Now, if you read through the lines, that means even those in FFN care, which, you know, continues and will require ongoing reminders and advocacy and stories that this is exciting. Next slide. Oh, that picture. Um, if you want to go back really quick, that picture is of one of our community champions standing with the governor right after he signed our bill. Um, next slide. Then we know that things aren't always perfect and happy and, and brilliant. There's still challenges, but we also know that with every new challenge, new leaders emerge. And one of the challenges, one of the major challenges that exists in Colorado, and I imagine that this exists in your states as well, are technical justifications. And these technical justifications get in the way of actually achieving equity, of being anti-racist, of serving DLL, of serving immigrant communities. Technical justifications of, well, we just don't know how to reach FFN providers. They're not regulated. They're not registered. Um, other technical justifications include with, with states being unsure of the flexibility that they can employ with federal funding. You know, one of the major one of the major technical just justifications that exists, and one of the conflicts that exists is how do we ensure that CACFP dollars can also go down to um, FFN providers? CACFP dollars is about nutrition; it's not about childcare. So why can't FFN providers access CACFP dollars, especially when states are given the ability to choose who is authorized? So these are some of the te technical justifications that continue to pose challenges. But like I said, challenges through every challenge, new leaders emerge. Um, I believe that is all I have. Lorena, I think people might have been hoping that you would uh, sort of say, and here's how you can contact our great consulting arm of our coalition. <laughs> there are a lot Do of we have one of those? 
lot of folks on the call are hoping that uh, that they can do some of these things in their states, no doubt, and wondering uh, wondering how all this amazing work happened. I don't think I said when I introduced you that the coalition has been in existence for almost forty years. So I think you know the the leadership that's developed over the years and the smarts and the continuity. Um, you know, just look at what you can accomplish. It just is really um, wonderful work. Um, so now it's um, it's a real pleasure to introduce Natalie Renew, who's the director of Homegrown, uh, which is a national initiative that focuses on improving the quality of and access to home-based care. And Natalie, I saw you shaking your head <laughs> um, very vigorously throughout uh, Lorena's presentation, because I think a lot of these um, the issues that she was speaking to are ones that you're familiar with, both from your um, your your long background. Um, uh, doing work uh, in Philadelphia and the, the Pennsylvania context, but now at the national level, uh, trying to advance a lot of policy work here. So uh, can't wait to get to your presentation about all the state and federal policy opportunities, because that's really what the point of the brief is about, how to put uh, some research underneath this related to immigrant and DLL families, but especially tie it to the moment that we're in. So turning it over to you for that. Thank you so much, Margie and Maki and Lorena. Um, the work in Colorado is really an inspiration for us at Homegrown. Um, so as Margie mentioned, my name is Natalie Renew. I'm the director of Homegrown. Um, we can go to the next slide and I can just share that Homegrown is a um, national funders collaborative. A list of our members is listed here. And we are really seeking to sort of change the conditions um, and the, um, the quality and how we think about home-based childcare, including family, friend, and neighbor care. And we do this in various ways um, with various partners around the country and really find ourselves at this moment at an incredible, um, with an incredible set of opportunities to really shift um, what has been a historical decline um, and disinvestment and um, under-respect and undervaluing of home-based childcare. So we can go to the next slide, please. Um, we are really at an incredible moment, uh, like literally minutes, you know, that, that um, uh, sort of hang in the balance here. Um, but there are really two significant um, opportunities to, to, I think, completely rethink, reimagine, and reconceptualize our childcare sector. One of those opportunities is already signed into law, which is the American Rescue Plan that created stabilization funds, supplemental funds in the current childcare program, and incredible tax opportunities for families. And the other is yet to be signed, but we're gonna, you know, for the purposes of my comments, I'm gonna assume some very positive action in Washington, D.C. with the Build Back Better, which reduces the cost of childcare for families, improves compensation for childcare providers, increases supply of high quality care, creates a universal pre-K program, and also continues or expands these tax cuts and tax incentives for families with young children. Um, these are sort of both unprecedented in their reach and size. And, you know, from the perspective of family, friend, and neighbor care are both opportunities, but should family, friend, and neighbor care not be fully included and supported with these initiatives really can be significant threats to this form of care. So, you know, in addition to American Rescue Plan and Build Back Better, there are also significant investments um, in many other aspects of the social safety net that can support rebuilding and improving, um, you know, the, the current conditions of family, friend, and neighbor care and the challenges that families face in terms of accessing child care. I will just say that, you know, this moment, um, you know, there are so many uh, issues to address, many that both Maki and Lorena sort of um, created, both sort of uh, raised, but really this is a moment to create an inclusive and supportive childcare sector that sees, values, and compensates the caregivers who have throughout history and at our hardest moments shown up for families. These are relatives, these are neighbors, these are friends who are not motivated by career, but are motivated by love and duty to community. And we've learned so much over the pandemic that we can leverage at this moment to ensure that these historic inequities and exclusions no longer continue. 
And so there's a lot that can be done with these big programs and the existing childcare and home visiting sectors to, at both the federal and state level to really um, articulate what a mixed delivery system inclusive of family, friend, and neighbor providers might look like. And I would say that's really the role of the federal government at this moment is to share with us and a clear definition of a mixed delivery system inclusive of family, friend, and neighbor. And for states to then define programs that generous, generously include family, friend, and neighbor providers in every aspect of their childcare system. We can go to the next slide, please. Um, so I've sort of thought about these opportunities as places to make investments and places for reform. And there are lots of places to make investments and lots of places to make reform because this part of the childcare sector has really been so um, under-supported for so long. But with these new funds, there really are opportunities to build supply. And that means in part recognizing and investing in existing caregivers who are a critical part of our supplies, but also supporting providers as they um, are interested in growing, whether that's growing to become licensed or growing to sort of serve more kids in a safe and appropriate way. There are dollars that can be allocated to improving quality and to really thinking about quality improvement programs that meet the needs and are desired by family, friend, and neighbor caregivers. And included in this are home visiting programs like Parent Child Plus that has an adapted model for family child care, credentialing and support programs like PESO that have really been built and designed explicitly for this community, peer support groups like the Kith and Kin program, and play and learn um, programs that, again, have been specifically designed with family, friend, and neighbor providers. These dollars should allow us to um, support quality programs for this community, not programs that have been sort of taken from a center-based world and sort of clumsily applied to this group of providers. There are significant opportunities to sort of address the economic well-being of family, friend, and neighbor providers. And I would say even when we see states and community uh, states um, making investments in FFN, they are primarily focused on some of the you know, quality supports, but really we know that we need to invest in the economic well-being of providers and stabilize their economic well-being so that the care they offer is both stable and consistent and that, that is of high quality. And there are opportunities to do this for, for states um, and communities by investing in networks of support that can uh, reliably get financial resources to providers and by ensuring that subsidy systems um, offer both sufficient financing and stable financing to providers. And by wrapping around additional supports like benefits counseling and financial um, coaching supports to ensure that providers are able to have reliable banking arrangements, file taxes in ways that are meaningful, and pursue genuine wealth building, home ownership, retirement, and um, you know all, all the factors necessary of a dignified workforce. There are also incredible opportunities to leverage comprehensive services to support the families, children, and providers. So um, some places like King County, Washington are able to get childcare health consultation to family, friend, and neighbor providers. Th these funds could really help us scale in interventions like that to get health, mental health, and disability supports effectively to children and families in family childcare and, and family, friend, and neighbor care. And you know, there's a lot that we need to continue to learn and understand and significant opportunity to use investment to, to further develop our body of evidence and understanding. Um, we can go to the next slide, please. In order to really be able to fully utilize these investments, there's a set of reforms that are really urgent. And in part, these reforms sort of hinge on how we um, define our childcare sector and who we allow to participate in those definitions and how the existing systems, particularly around licensing, QRS, and childcare subsidy, um, create inclusion and space for, for family, friend, and neighbor providers. Um, so there is language in the, you know, the federal bills that both sort of 
in both of the bills that sort of allow investments to be made in kind of creating pathways and um, providing supports to providers. But fundamentally, these systems currently are not hospitable, supportive, or designed around the needs of family, friend, and neighbor providers. And therefore, we really need significant reform in terms of um, how licensing systems are designed, for whom they are designed for, um, how we conceptualize QRIS or quality rating and, and how that, um, you know, makes sense here. And then I think a lot about how we get funding to this provider population. Again, both a sufficient amount of funding and stability in those payment processes so that they do not, um, the public funds uh, are more reliable and stable. Um, and then, you know, as, as has been talked a little bit here, I think there's a real opportunity both at the federal and the state level to make more explicit connections between the childcare sector and some of these ancillary and supportive um, policies. So really connecting um, childcare with food and nutrition, as we've done in places like Head Start and Life and Family Childcare, we need to go further and do that in um, family, friend, and neighbor care. Um, also, I think really... Um, Thinking about safety and health in, um, in, in, in the home through the lens of a broader understanding that every house should be lead free, every place where a young child is raised should be free of pests and radon and, and fire hazards, and that these are really much bigger issues than just child care and could be addressed through a larger, more holistic uh, policy reforms and opportunities. And then lastly, you know, I'll just say I think a lot of what is implicit in the findings in uh, the reports that Maki shared and in, in other reports is opportunities to really shift governance and the way that government interacts with family, friend, and neighbor providers and immigrant and DLL communities. And I think this infusion of resources and these opportunities around reform are really an opportunity to bring providers and families to the table, but also to really think about shifting the workforce that supports these families and providers and ensuring that that workforce is culturally appropriate, speaks the language of the community, and really values and respects this care. So with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Margie um, so that we can um, continue the conversation as a group. Thanks so much, Natalie. Um, these were such wonderfully uh, dense presentations in the in the best, uh, uh, I mean that in the best way. Um, and um, and so trying to unpack some of this, uh, you know, we've got some uh, uh, really terrific questions. And please, folks, uh, keep your questions coming in. And any we don't get to uh, in this Q and A period, we'll uh, do our best to answer online. Um, I think. Uh, Natalie, I'd like to ask one um, broader question before we get into the thicket around licensing, which there are lots of questions and I think all three of you will wanna to respond to them. But I just, um, uh, one question is in terms of um, equity and civil rights, is there any, uh, is there any way that civil rights um, laws can be leveraged to simply show that a large portion of the population that's intended to be served cannot be served with the way the system uh, is currently designed? Like, have there been any complaints via the Office of Civil Rights at HHS or things like that, that, um, that hold out any, any hope of being a lever for change? Sorry, that might not, not be a for you. I don't know who would even know the answer <laughs> to that. <laughs> Yeah, sadly, I wish I knew the answer to that, but I do not. And I'm not aware of any sort of challenges or efforts, um, you know, in that vein. Right. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of trying to uh, poke around and see, you know, is there, especially with the, um, the current administration, the Biden administration, wanting to advance equity and really reconsider a lot of, um, a lot of policy frameworks that as a lot of this money um, moves into the childcare space, are there are there other levers that we haven't uh, been able to tap in the past? All right, so licensing, ladies. <laughs> um, I think um, so. One of the big one of the big picture uh, questions has to do um, just with the the tension there around licensing. That like, there's lots of good reasons that there's. A whole set of things that have um, grown up around licensing, particularly um, from uh, trying to protect children's health, et cetera, et cetera. 
um, those also uh, have wound up um, making a lot of value judgments that um, that all of you uh, have questioned. Um, so I guess I would just say, I, trying to combine a few of the questions, um, is there like how do how do you think about that nexus where if we're um, trying to have non-licensed FFM providers be able to access grants and supports, but um, you still would want to provide support for, uh, you would want to not be providing support for non-licensed providers that may not be safe for children. Um, I guess I would say, you know, Natalie and Lorena, maybe you're most experienced in being part of those kinds of conversations. So if you want to just paint a picture of that, um, about how those conversations um, unfold. And then um, there was a particular question for you, Lorena, related to that about um, is, the, uh, is the State Parent Coalition pursuing some aspect of licensing, maybe for example, grandfathering in experienced FFM providers um, for the purposes of potential increases in financial compensation for providers and access to other supports like food. Um, and, um, you know, part of the context for the question is that um, that it's also an issue under debate in the home health field in senior care, you know, like this is this is something that extends beyond um, just the uh, the child care space, um, this tension, I guess. Um, so anyway, Natalie, do, do you want to maybe take a crack at that? And Maki, I don't mean to exclude you if you want to jump in. Um, and uh, uh, but anyway, Natalie, why don't you take it away? Sure. Um, so I'll just offer a couple thoughts on the question around licensing. Um, you know, of course, everybody wants to assure that young children are safe. And I do think that a lot of the current conversation is sort of based on a set of, of biases that, you know, uh, are not justified. I, I think a couple things that we think about is that firstly, the effort to ensure that children are safe cannot be met when there is no connection to these families and providers, right? The current state of affairs where these um, caregivers are fully excluded means that there is no opportunity to provide support. The second thing I will say is from my perspective, the opportunity is a support forward one with you know, regulation sort of in the background. And that if we are really serious and committed about health and safety, that we would do everything we can to find and support these providers in a proactive, culturally responsive way with resources, not with regulation. I think there's an incredible opportunity to expand our existing public health infrastructure to address the safety of every home in which a young child lives, learns, and grows, regardless of whether childcare is occurring in that home. And that, you know, that's a way to really think about this as a more universal piece. And then I'll just say, we are really interested in looking at other sectors that have grappled with what safety um, in, you know, a, a publicly paid environment with a relative or other looks like, and really continue to try to build kind of the, the case for um, why, you know, there's an opportunity to support FFN providers um, outside of the licensing or in a, in a different system. And I will also just underscore one other thing, which is that license exempt providers do still often have to demonstrate meeting uh, pretty high standards of health and safety. So, um, you know, in the case where providers are, in fact, getting paid by the state, many of them, almost all of them continue to take training and demonstrate, you know, a safety standard. Right, terrific. Lorena, um, take a crack at the big question and also the specific one, which however you want to go at it. Sure. sure. I also want to just add one one opportunity that does exist nationally around achieving equity for DLL learners is taking a look at our language laws. Um, so for example, Colorado has a English language only, or not only English language as the official language, which then allows states to get away with only providing things in English or allows Colorado to. So that's another opportunity just to keep in the back of your mind is our language laws. Um, <clears throat> we're referring regarding the licensing question. So in Colorado, there was a task force that was created, um, the Safe Child Care Task Force. And this was in response to the really terrible, tragic um, deaths of um, young, tiny little kiddos in the care of um, providers that were breaking the law. Um, they were breaking the law because they were caring for far too many children and they were allowed to, whether they were licensed or not. Um, and so this 
this task force was created and um, one of the biggest things that that came out of it was this awareness that folks who wanted to, to pr promote safe childcare were entering the space with the stigmatized idea that if you're not licensed, you're unsafe. And that's just not the case. Whether you're trained or not, just because you're unlicensed does not mean you're unsafe. I can imagine that probably the majority of you on this call have at some point had to take care of your nephews or your sisters or your grandkids. And you've done so in a safe way, even if you haven't received formal training. So this Safe Child Care Task Force met. And one of the things that came out of it um, was the, the FFN providers that, that were invited to speak to the, um, to the Safe Child Care Task Force. They said, what we want is training. We want ongoing professional development. Do we wanna have to get licensed? Not necessarily, but that doesn't mean that we're not committed to providing the best care. And that is where the relationship between community-based organizations that provide this type of training and government agencies that support and fund and regulate childcare need to exist. So that way, organizations like CSPC and the many others that have, have uh, who are on this call can receive the support to continue providing that professional development training and support to FFN providers. The reality is the idea that if you're an FFN provider, why not just get licensed? I mean, go ahead and ask a go ahead and ask a grandma that's only taking care of their two grandkids. Why don't you just get licensed? Why does she need to get licensed? Maybe she does need some additional support and training, but who doesn't? Like the reality is parenting and child rearing and child caring does not come naturally and everyone needs some guidance and support. Um, in Colorado with the CSPC, one of the things that we are talking about, one of the things that we are looking at is how do we work with our state agency? And this has been a conversation we've already had. We just haven't taken the action to do it yet. If any of, of CDHS folks are here on the call, this is for you. Um, we are, we've talked about how we can have PASO become a pre-licensing program so that when they graduate from PASO, then they've already accomplished their pre-licensing. And that way they're not gonna have to do it again, especially if it's not um, linguistically or even technologically accessible to the providers that wanna be licensed, be licensed. Are we gonna advocate for licensure? No, we don't advocate for licensure, but we absolutely advocate for high quality best care possible. And if for some providers that means becoming licensed, we will help them. And for others, if they don't, we will also help them. That's great. Um, thanks, Lorena. Um, so I think Maki, this question is maybe best for you, but, um, but uh, Natalie and Lorena, feel free to jump in. Uh, there's a question about resources and policies that most directly impact refugees, but it comes with a frame of uh, the challenge of multiple languages and communities. So um, Maki, I know um, you've done work over the years at MPI looking at super diversity in the early childhood space and um, issues related to, well, and coming up issues related to language access, especially for um, uh, speakers of languages other than Spanish, which is a really big issue in terms of language diversity in uh, refugee communities. Um, so we've I'll just say for everyone on the call that we've kind of been shocked in our work um, looking at QRIS systems, for example, that anyone could get any kind of quality rating without being able to show that they can speak the language of the folks that they're serving. Uh, and, um, and so I just wonder, um, Maki, if you wanna take this one on um, in the context of like building the workforce and having um, having it be more more valued and also um, required even that that sort of language access language skills um, are threaded through our understandings of quality. Um, so do you want to talk about opportunities you see for that Maki? Yeah, I mean, I, the language access and language justice issue is so huge and is so foundational to equity for the immigrant and refugee community, and especially for refugee communities where these lower incidence minority languages are spoken. Um, and I also saw a question about immigrant enclaves and, you know, how FFN interacts with, with those situations. And I think it, you know, it seems like the resources are there, right, for a workforce that's culturally and linguistically competent, but the pipeline isn't there. 
Um, and so w we think about FFN and I think this issue of there are a lot of providers that don't want to be licensed, but there are for, for many, especially in refugee communities, this is a very accessible workforce opportunity. There are entrepreneurship programs, but we still do not have that pipeline to get professionals to where they could ultimately end up. And um, we've looked in the past at integrated pathways, just given that the way professionalization of the workforce is going, you know, for someone who doesn't speak English, doesn't have a, a high school or a college degree, it takes years for them to take the ESL classes, the adult basic education classes before they can even enroll in one credit bearing course. So how are we integrating some of those skill sets and language instruction to make that possible and build the workforce that we want to see where we have linguistic and cultural competence across all sectors of the workforce and not just concentrated in FFN. Um, and I know we're running out of time, so I'll, I'll stop there in case. Anybody... Okay, so I think we are at time. So I'll just say there were a few other uh, really uh, terrific and pertinent questions. We'll make sure that we uh, get back to folks around that. Um, and I'm sure that uh, just this brief mention of uh, workforce issues and the connection to quality and to language access um, are going to cause even more to come in at the end of the webinar. So we'll try and figure out um, how to create a space for addressing all those. But for now, um, I just want to uh, say thanks again to Lorena and Natalie for their terrific uh, both presentations and thoughts during the, um, the Q&A. And also congrats to Maki and Jasmine uh, for the around the release of the report. And we look forward to staying touch in touch with those of you who are um, who, are, who have been on the webinar, and we just really appreciate the terrific work that so many of you are doing trying to move these issues forward. So uh, best of luck for, for your work, all those of you who, are, um, who have been listening in, and uh, we look forward to staying in touch. Thanks so much, and have a great rest of the day.